Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Clinical practice guidelines have been around for a long time now. As primary contact practitioners, chiropractors can use guidelines to assist them in their clinical decision-making and improve patient results. One of the challenges with chiropractic is varied technique approaches. This diversity has led to a resistance in chiropractors embracing guidelines in the past. However, recent media coverage and the Safer Care Victoria review into spinal manipulation for children under 12 has crystallised the need for the profession to mark a line in the sand. Evidence-based clinical practice guidelines not only gives the chiropractor informed direction, but also highlights to the government, the public and other stakeholders what is acceptable best practice. While we won't be covering the paediatric issue in this particular podcast, we will be talking to chiropractic educators and researchers at Macquarie University who met with myself and also ACA CEO Matthew Fisher earlier in the year at a meeting also attended by Professor André Boussers from Canada. Professor Boussers has been instrumental in the construction of multiple clinical practice guidelines and was here to offer his expertise to the Australian chiropractic profession. Now, before introducing the two speakers today, just to give you a little bit of their background. Simon French is Professor of Musculoskeletal Disorders and Research Director at the Department of Chiropractic Macquarie University. He completed his PhD at the Australasian Cochrane Centre at Monash University and undertook his postdoctoral position at the University of Melbourne. From 2013 to 2018, he was based at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada, and held the Canadian Chiropractic Research Foundation Professorship at the School of Rehabilitation Therapy. He's also deputy editor of the open access journal Chiropractic and Manual Therapies. Our other guest today is Aaron Downey. He's a health researcher and full-time lecturer at Macquarie University in the Department of Chiropractic and has been in continual practice in Wollongong for 24 years. He completed his Master's of Philosophy in 2011 and he's currently enrolled in a PhD at the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health University in Sydney. Hi Simon and Aaron, welcome to the ACA podcast. Hello Anthony. Thanks Anthony, pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules. I know that many Australian chiropractors will be familiar with you both, but perhaps on a personal note, we could start with understanding why you were originally interested in chiropractic and what made, or what was the reason behind the transition to becoming an academic and researcher? And perhaps I'll throw that question to you first, Simon. Sure. Um, yeah, I graduated from RMIT um, chiropractic in 93, um, and I went straight into clinical practice, had a couple of years in Sydney, and then I went to Melbourne, um, and I was, I was in, before I became an academic, I was in practice for, for about 10 years or a decade, 
I um, had a variety of practice experiences. I, I, I worked in mostly multidisciplinary practices. I had the opportunity to do um, quite a few locums for the last couple of years that I was in practice, which was a great experience. We travelled around Australia and, and got a chance to see different practice styles in different beautiful locations. But in the last couple of years of, of practice, I, inspired by, by my mentors, um, was encouraged to do a Master of Public Health and that really opened my mind to evidence-based practice and academia and opportunities to be involved in, in some research. And then after that, after doing that, a job opportunity came up, which was working um, for a group that was affiliated with the Australasian Cochrane Centre um, and, and had an opportunity to, to become a full-time academic. Um, and I always intended to go back to clinical practice, but 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 I, I really just love the academia and and research opportunity, and and then other opportunities arose from that, including an opportunity to do a PhD in that setting, and um and so then from that time on, I, I became a full time academic. It was obviously your destiny, by the sound of things, Simon. Yes, it just sort of came about like that. I think, Anthony. Yeah. And was it a similar story for you, Aaron? I had a little bit of a different path, I suppose. I originally left school with the drive to become an electrical engineer. Oh, wow. And I started um, a cadetship with BHP um, at Blue Scope um, Steel in the, in the Illawarra there and uh, completed three years of that um, as an engineering degree student and then decided that I wanted to be involved something to do with healthcare and and to me engineering and healthcare equaled chiropractic um, it was a fairly natural transition for me at least but my family and friends at the time uh, scratched their heads but nevertheless I, uh, I went on with that and enrolled in the Macquarie program uh, which is all at Summerhill at the time it, it wasn't actually on Macquarie campus and uh, once I graduated in 1994, uh, I went straight into practice in Wollongong in private practice, and I was there for about five years. I was always interested in rehabilitation and, and uh, the mechanisms, if you like, of, of disease and repair, and I'd become a little bit frustrated with some of the practices that were in my region at the time, and I thought that I could make a, a real difference perhaps by teaching students to be better practitioners. Um, and not perhaps be caught up with some of the, the systems and practices that I, I thought even back then, this is in 2000, that were perhaps not the best for, for healthcare in general. And once I'd started teaching, I'd, I got some tutoring position at Macquarie University. And once I'd started teaching there, I realised that it wasn't uh, lack of teaching resources, it was, it was really lack of research, lack of evidence and lack of integration of that evidence um, to the clinicians that was needed and that, that drove me to start a Master of Philosophy at the time as, a, as an entry path to a PhD. So mine's been a little bit long because I started my MPhil in 2010, I think, and, uh, and I'm on the tail end of a PhD part-time candidature. Very close, very close to completing. Well, good luck with that. It's a it's a well, fantastic um, achievement to get a PhD. Well done, Simon, for, for achieving yours some time ago, and you're just on the cusp of doing it, Aaron. 
So yes. today, effectively, we're going to be talking about clinical practice guidelines. So, um, Simon, first of all, perhaps we should define exactly what a clinical practice guideline is and why is it that they're important for healthcare? Sure. I, I think it's probably good just to define the term as, as evidence-based clinical practice guideline, and I won't keep saying that term, but, but let's assume that that's what we're talking about because I guess there are lots of guidelines in a, in a loose term out there that, that, that chiropractors could access and, and we need to be aware of their, of their existence. But it's also important that we as practitioners assess the quality. So I'll, I'll talk in a general sense about evidence-based clinical practice guidelines. So clinical practice guidelines are, are really a, a tool that synthesises the latest and greatest evidence usually based around a specific clinical condition. So there's clinical practice guidelines for, for chiropractors available on, on back pain, on osteoarthritis, on whiplash, on headache, those, those type of musculoskeletal conditions. And it's produced ideally by a multidisciplinary panel and this panel would be experts in their field, very aware of the research process, aware of the clinical implications of the condition that they're talking about. And that group gets together and will search for the highest quality evidence that's available in order to inform clinical practice around that particular condition. And that's typically uh, a systematic reviews that they search for. So as I'm sure your listeners are aware, systematic review are synthesis of, of evidence. Basically, clinical practice guidelines are synthesis of those syntheses, if you like. Yep. And so the, the panel will go ahead and they'll critically appraise the quality of that, that, that research evidence that's available. If a systematic review is not available, then the, the panel will actually undertake their own systematic review. So for the clinician, it's really a shortcut to accessing the best evidence available for to, to inform their clinical practice because all of the hard work, as in the research has been conducted, but also the synthesis and the critical appraisal of that research has been conducted for them. I guess it's a bit like reading the executive summary of a, a very long report, isn't it? It is, it is, and that, that's that's the ideal. I mean, sometimes the, the, the executive summary can be a bit long for clinical practice guidelines, but, but certainly it's making that research evidence a, a, as accessible as possible. And and just, just, just want to just mention um, in the Australian context that the, the National Health and Medical Re Research Council, which is the arm of the government that, that funds um, research uh, activity in Australia, they also have a guideline for guideline document and process. So ideally, if, if a clinical practice guideline is produced in Australia, it would have adhered to the recommendations and the, and the process that's outlined by the NHMRC and, and there's very explicit things that, that have to be done to ensure the quality of the guideline is, is, is appropriate and, and of high standard. And for clinical practice guideline producers, they can actually get their, um, their guideline endorsed by the NHMRC, which, which again, is, a, is, a, is like a stamp of quality, if you like, to ensure that you're reading something that, that, it, that is high quality and has been done, you know, with rigour, with with, with um consideration of conflict of interests and uh, ensuring that the panel has is, is got broad expertise in, in ensuring that that there's patient representation for example on the panel and to ensure that you know we can really trust that that the findings that they come up with 
So, Aaron, there's obviously quite a few guidelines out there already relevant to chiropractors. What are the ones in particular that uh, that chiropractors need to be aware of? Yes, sure, Anthony. There's, there, as you say, there are a lot of clinical practice guidelines, and I'll, I'll mention perhaps two first up, which are, are, are really front and centre um, to inform care at the moment across professions. Um, and these are, there's one dealing with low back pain from the American College of Physicians, and it's called Non-Invasive Treatments for Acute, Subacute and Chronic Low Back Pain. So it covers all forms of back pain. Um, it's, it's a, it's a well-evidenced high-level synthesis, as, as Simon just mentioned. Another very important guideline is a, is a diagnostic imaging guideline. And this is a, a guideline to help all clinicians who are involved with managing musculoskeletal complaints, um, decisions perhaps to guide decisions on when or when not to image. And it provides a lot of advice there. And, and these are never just single sets of rules, but, but they, they're there to guide the practitioner. That's a, a couple of individual guidelines. I think for to value um, the, to the listener for this podcast, more broadly, um, there are a couple of places that chiropractors can go to to seek out guidelines that they might be interested in finding. And, and the first one of those is the Canadian Chiropractic Guideline Initiative. Um, it's headed by Andre Boussiers, and, and Andre has spoken before. And we will have a link, I think, to a, a short presentation by Andre um, attached to this podcast. And the, the guideline initiative aims to transform the culture of the profession, not just um, list a lot of guidelines. It's quite easy to find. If you just Google chiropractic.ca, that will take you within another click to the guideline initiative. And there's a, on the landing page there, there is a, a point and click interface where you can choose to um, choose a guideline, say, on physical activity during pregnancy. Um, there's a guideline on managing osteoarthritis. These are all targeted at chiropractors. They've been um, filtered for that purpose. There's headache and concussion guidelines, guidelines for managing neck conditions, upper and mid-back conditions, upper extremity conditions, low back and low extremity conditions. So there's a, a one-stop shop there for the chiropractic profession um, that's been um, filtered and and collated by Andre and his um, guideline initiative. Another really good um, place to start if a chiropractor wants to find some guidelines is the World Federation of Chiropractic Suggested Reading List. And that's an easy um, website as well. It's just um, www wfcsuggestedreadinglist.com, all one word except for the .com. You just need to scroll to the bottom of the page and there's a guidelines link there that, that links you to um, quite a few guidelines as well. We'll, so, definitely, we'll definitely make sure to provide those uh, links um, with this podcast uh, and we'll also make that available on the ACA uh, website as well so people can easily get access uh, to that. I mean, clearly research is happening all the time. Uh, Information is being updated. I'm assuming, of course, that guidelines uh, are constantly being updated, especially for things like low back pain. Uh, is it just important to read the most recent guideline or is there, um, is there information in previous guidelines that, uh, that might also be pertinent? 
Yeah, Anthony, it, it's 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 a simple answer, I guess, is yes. That obviously, at getting access, guidelines take time to produce, and you know, unfortunately, for some clinical conditions, by the time the the guidelines produced, it can be out of date. Already, other research has been undertaken, and and that could supersede some of the uh, some of the recommendations to some degree. So, certainly, looking for the most recent guidelines is important. Um, the other other thing that can be been in recent uh, years, there's been some systematic reviews of guidelines that have been produced. Um, that you know, again, is another kind of level of synthesis. But uh, but but certainly, Chris Marr, a, a physiotherapist researcher in, in Australia, and, and his group have um, have synthesised the evidence of sort of recent um, clinical practice guidelines for, for low back pain in, in specifically and have compared how the recommendations change. And, and that's kind of really interest, is interesting and very relevant for chiropractors. When you look at the path of the recommendations in back pain clinical practice guidelines in the last decade, you know, they've very much swung towards conservative self-management and, uh, and and biopsychosocial approaches to, to care that is the bread and butter of, of chiropractic practice, you know, as opposed to a very, very medicalised view of back pain and recommending pain medication, et cetera. So, so clearly the opioid crisis has really swayed that to some degree, but also the, the evidence, the recent evidence is, is clearly pointing more towards conservative therapies as first-line care. And so from going back to your original question, certainly accessing the most... Um, recent back pain guidelines are going is going to give you the most uh, the most pertinent information. The other things to consider are where the the guidelines been produced in in recent years. There's been guidelines for back pain in the UK, um, coming out of North America, and coming out of Denmark. And for an Australian practitioner, there might be some local context specific. Um, information that needs to be considered, so 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 you just need to take that into account. Yeah. Um, and the final thing I want to mention there is that as a, um, a, a a critical observer, when when we don't just take this information and and absorb it and think that it's correct, there is a tool available called the Agree tool. Just agree is in the word uh, A G R E E. If you Google that, you'll find it, which is a a, a critical appraisal tool of system of of um, clinical practice guidelines. So for the very uh, conscientious practitioner, you apply the the agree tool to ensure that the guideline you're reading is actually uh, up to scratch. Wow, that's interesting. So um, and particularly with uh, the current sort of pediatric uh, environment in Australia, um, there's information and consensus documents and Delphi studies uh, in the field of pediatrics, what's the difference between a guideline and a consensus document or, or Delphi study? Yeah, so when again, when we're talking about evidence-based clinical practice guidelines, a consensus process is used when there isn't the evidence available to guide that recommendation directly. And the reality is, uh, of course, for chiropractic practice, a lot of the, the practices that we that we have and a lot of the conditions that come to see us, there may not yet be the evidence available to, to guide practice in a, in, a, in a helpful way. So a consensus process is, is often implemented, which brings together a group of, of experts in the field and then a, a rigorous process is, is undertaken to try 
and come up with with that uh, that recommendation. The process is called, of course, is a bit fraught when the, when the evidence is not available. It's 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 very it's very challenging to come up with you know clear guidance about a particular clinical practice. Um, so the, the the again the astute practitioner just has to be really wary of of these consensus documents um, because oftentimes it's the bias of the panel or, or, or the the prior views of the of the individuals in the panel that can really direct um, what uh, what 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 the recommendations come up with. You mentioned Delphi study, uh, Anthony. That that's another process. That's a a, a process of coming to consensus. It's a consensus document is more of a usually a looser process. Adelphi is a very kind of rigid process of trying to come up with a consensus amongst a group, and that's that's more of a research process, if you like, as opposed to a uh, to a consensus process, which is part of a clinical practice guideline. I guess one of the challenges with uh, so many uh, paediatric conditions, whether they be a manual approach or a uh, medicalised approach, um, often the evidence is not strong like it is in the areas of, of back pain where there's just so much uh, research that's been done over many, many decades. Aaron, I want to throw a question to you as the one who's um, more in uh, practice at the moment. I imagine that the concern that practitioners may have about uh, guidelines is that they may be restricting practice. So I'm thinking of the, the chiropractor who's does things in uh, his or her own particular way. They may have been very successful in practice, but they're just concerned that the uh, that guidelines are too narrow and won't include or respect their particular style of practice. What do you say to that? Sure. Um, these are conversations, this is the type of conversation that I quite often have with clinicians, and they... There's, there's a couple of key points that I think must come across in any discussion of this sort, and that's firstly to recognise that guidelines are not a rigid set of rules and they do represent a synthesis of the best evidence. But the, the harder thing to swallow, perhaps, that the clinicians must realise is that when evidence is available and it is applicable to that clinical situation, they really should be considered. Um, the clinicians own attitudes um, have to be trumped, in essence, by the, the, the guidance that's created with a very rigorous um, synthesis process if it's applicable to that clinical situation. And I think that's what some clinicians don't realise. Um, it may be not um, directly applicable to the situation. In essence, we're asking for the clinicians to be nimble and not rigid when they deliver their health care. For instance, many healthcare practices over the years have changed, but the clinician may not have. We no longer bleed patients as uh, a regular part of care. Medicine gave that up a long time ago, yet at the time that would have been considered best care. Um, likewise, as chiropractic clinicians, we shouldn't be doing serial imaging to check the progress of patients. Um, because we now know that that really doesn't provide any extra value for care, and in fact, it may be harmful. Um, perhaps if I can refer to a, a particular document um, that, that might help the reader, and it's, it's written, the lead author was Rochelle Bookbinder, who you interviewed yes. last year, I think, Anthony. Yes, I did. That's, that was part of um, the Lancet series in 2018, and it's called A Call for Action. And some of her key points there are, are to try and change clinician behaviour 
by investing in research to address these evidence to practice gaps, and that's what we're talking around today, but also, more importantly, to give the clinician effective training in how to integrate care around the best evidence and to understand that best care in an evidence, um, in, a, in a current healthcare environment means using best evidence. So that's the type of a discussion I would have with clinicians. Um, they still have to reason out with the patient in front of them, but if a guideline is applicable, they really should be considering that um, guidance. And I guess it's really about um, that translation of evidence into practice. And I don't think the chiropractic profession are um, unique in being a bit slow to uptake guidelines. Obviously, um, you know, there are plenty of GPs out there that are still recommending bed rest and, um, and uh, going to analgesics rather than sort of movement exercise and, and manual therapies. Um, is, it, is it a case where... Um, the, the challenge is just the uptake from practitioners. Is it that we don't have enough guidelines or, or that there's not enough practitioners um, taking up the information from these guidelines? Yeah, I, th I think it's a bit of both, Anthony. It, it, this question taps into my research, my main research interest, which is is, is an area of, of what's called in Canada, which is where I spent the last five years, of knowledge translation. And this is trying to help clinicians and, and also patients and, and health policymakers to use evidence in practice uh, much more effectively than, than we have in the past. And, and look, you're absolutely right, chiropractic's not the only profession where this is a problem. It's a problem throughout the entire healthcare system, in hospital care, in, in, in primary care more broadly, in, in, in secondary care, in all sorts of settings. But I guess, you know, what we have control over is chiropractic and, and, and that's where we should be focusing. Absolutely. So there's, there's a balance. There's no doubt that we... There are CPGs that already exist. For, for back pain, the, the evidence has been pretty consistent, like like Aaron is talking about with imaging. We, we've known uh, this this issue of, of not routinely imaging for, for acute back pain for a number of years, but we know that that issue is a major issue still currently in practice. Mm. So I think for, for certain uh, areas where the evidence is strong and consistent, then we should be focusing on the evidence to practice gap. When there's areas where, you know, we're not so sure about the evidence, we're not so sure about, you know, whether this treatment should be used or that treatment should be used, then that's more of a need for, for, for clinical practice guideline production. And, and then maybe even that could lead to primary research that needs to be done in that area as well. Simon, you mentioned earlier that um, the practitioners need to be cognizant that, some guidelines are specific for you know regions in the world and might not translate as well to, to, to Australia. Do we need guidelines specific for Australia or can we simply look at adopting Canadian or UK guidelines? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good question. It, it, we, we, I guess Aaron and I have to declare our conflict here to, to some degree in that, in that part of the, this conversation has come about because we are interested in setting up a, uh, a guideline initiative here in Australia um, and and I, I, what we would first do with that initiative is to look at current guidelines that already exist and then consider whether we can adopt them and, and adapt them to the Australian context or whether we need to start from scratch and actually develop an, a new guideline 
because other guidelines or or, or uh, more recent guidelines don't don't exist. Uh, in my own ex- my I, I didn't I should have said this earlier, but my own ex- personal experience with guidelines was started actually in two thousand and three. Um, I was the chiropractic panel member on the Australian um, Clinical Practice Guidelines for Acute Pain Management, and since that time, there has not been another back pain guideline written in Australia, which is pretty surprising. Um, but you also have to think, well, there's actually lots of high-quality guidelines that have been done by other countries in, in other settings, and certainly a lot of the recommendations we can we can translate into the Australian context fairly easily. But there may, you know, I, I think it's worth looking at at least and considering this rigorously to see whether or not there are particular um, contexts in Australia that we that we need to consider. I was at the WFC uh, assembly in Berlin um, last month, and the um, uh, Richard Brown at that uh, assembly said that we need to respect our past but not revere it. I, and he was very much of the idea of the profession's need to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, certainly, but evolve as, as a profession so that so that we're you know keeping pace with um, with modern healthcare. Do you think chiropractic's keeping pace at this stage? Uh, <laughs> T- tough point, question, I know. It's, <laughs> I, I I think it's uh, I think it's dangerous to generalise um, because the. The profession is really a, a plural term. I would argue that there are currently professions within the chiropractic um, name, and there are quite a number of practitioners. And I, I will speak for people that that um, teach at, at Macquarie. Uh, a lot of the teaching at Macquarie is done by session-like academics, and these people are clinicians. And we have robust discussions on what the best practiced approach would be to, to, to deliver to our students. So, it, again, it's not just a set of rules. It's a, it's a what's the best way forward? Let's have a discussion. Um, instead of this is the way I've always practiced, this is the way the, the, the seminar I went to last week said I should practice, this will make me the most money. So these will be the drivers that, that will um, determine what care I deliver. So I think that's two different practice philosophies there. Yeah. Um, it's hard to generalise. One part of the profession is certainly moving forward. Uh, the colleagues that we teach with, that I work with, um, it's multidisciplinary care, um, physiotherapists, GPs, spinal surgeons, rheumatologists, all speak the same language but have specialties within their domains. Mm. Um, that's the way practice should be, um, in, in my opinion. Uh, that also happens to be the, the opinion of m- most uh, government bodies and health funders. So I think that the tide is certainly turning if there was something to turn um, towards this type of healthcare, and I would put a, um, a statement out there that anyone that refuses to, to at least acknowledge that and investigate that themselves um, may in the end be left behind. Yeah. And Anthony, can I just add, add, add something to that? The, the um, Just to bring in a little bit of data about this, so, so if I reflect on... During the, my postdoc, we did the coast 
study in Australia, uh, which was looking at chiropractic practice and, and really whether that practice aligned with evidence-based practice. Um, and then subsequently to that, um, I was involved with a group in Canada and we synthesised the evidence. We did what's called a scoping review of all the studies that have ever been done that, that we looked at chiropractic utilisation. That was a large part of the study. But also we looked at what who was coming to see chiropractors and what chiropractors were doing for them. And that, that so Coast was one single study. This, this scoping review included over 500 studies uh, across the world. And the large majority of people that come to see chiropractors have back pain. That's mm. absolutely established. And the treatment that chiropractors are providing for the most part is conservative, non-surgical, evidence-based approach to managing. I think if we drill down, there are always ways that we can improve. But I think that we do have some data to show that the large majority of chiropractors, the, and, and reflecting on WFC, there was a lot of talk about the silent majority that are really doing a great job keeping up to date doing it quietly, keeping their patients happy, helping their patients uh, lead more fulfilling lives through through reducing their pain. So I, I think that the message is that it is evolving. Uh, I would like to see it evolve a bit faster. I'd like to see um, us, uh, us focusing more on, on the uh, elements of the profession that are not evidence-based and are, and are vocally non-evidence-based. But I think the large majority of the profession is is, is doing things like this, keeping up to date, being aware of the evidence. They've heard about the Lancet series. They're, they're, they're ensuring that their practice is in line with, with current, current and best practice approaches. I just wonder if most chiropractors actually had a look at their practice. They would probably see that fundamentally what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis is really within those practice guidelines anyway. To, to some degree, but I think the first step is actually just doing that, <laughs> just doing that critical thinking, you know, ensuring that, that we do have a good look at our own practice and, and, and ensuring that it is consistent. Indeed. All right. Well, look, uh, thanks again, Simon Aaron. It's been fantastic having a chat with you this afternoon. Um, I know you're very busy and I really appreciate the time that you've made to uh, have a chat with our ACA podcast viewers. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. Pleasure to be here. Fantastic. And uh, if I hope uh, you've got something out of the podcast, that's it for me. Thanks very much for listening. Um, we hope that you found this podcast is helpful in your quest for excellence. And I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. <music>